the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, as we close out the week, this is a true pleasure and a true delight. Some years ago, I had the opportunity to see this great gentleman uh, performing his, um, I don't know if you would say impersonation or act as Teddy Roosevelt. He is Joe Wiegand, W-I-G-A-N-D. Uh, on behalf of and in support of the Teddy Roosevelt Presidential Library. And due to the very uh, great, wonderful kindness of some wonderful community uh, citizens and dear friends, uh, Jerry and Lynn Harris, uh, who turned out to be friends with uh, Mr. Uh, Wiegand, they invited me to uh, sup with him, and we've got to know each other quite a bit. And it is a delight to welcome into the studio uh, Joe Wiegand, who has... Many hats, but one of my favorite is the one he doffs on his website, uh, teddyrooseveltshow.com, as uh, the best, the single best, the single greatest uh, uh, Theodore uh, Roosevelt repriser in the country. Joe, welcome to the studio. Welcome back to Phoenix. Seth, it's a delight to be with you and with the listeners to AM 960. I've enjoyed your shows. I've traveled around Arizona, and it's good to be back in the Valley of the Sun and and in the Grand Canyon State, where Theodore Roosevelt's legacy is alive and well, and just a delight to be with you and your listeners. You know, I have so much I could talk to you about. Let's start this way, since it is your first, hopefully, of several appearances on this show. Tell the audience just a, a brief autobiography and how you got to be, aside from the amazing <laughs> look that you have, the amazing gift of, I suppose, what you were born with, uh, as looking like Teddy Roosevelt, uh, how you got to be doing what you're doing. Well, credit to uh, my mother and father, Jim Wiegand and Joan Prager Wiegand, a couple of Chicagoans. I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. Got a great public school education. Of course, this was uh, the early 1970s. My father was in the heating and air conditioning business, but he wasn't happy doing what he was doing. And in those uh, uh, that era of uh, self-fulfillment, uh, my father and mother decided to pack up and moved their three boys and then four boys out to Hollywood, California. My father became a hippie comedian, and he prospered. And at the same time, when you're in uh, Hollywood, California in the late 70s, and your father's a hippie comedian and your mother's a hippie artist, the only way to be a rebellious teenager was to volunteer for Ronald Reagan and <laughs> join the NRA and the Christian Coalition. And my, my dad used to tell audiences, I didn't know I had DNA like that. And Seth, I just cleaned That's that up. That's what I did my, to my parents. Yeah, my yeah. father was a hippie comedian. Yeah. So um, I've had a wonderful adventure. I've been blessed with uh, good health, family, friends. Uh, I attempted to bring the Ronald Reagan revolution home to his home state of Illinois. Mm -hmm. Always proud of being in the land of Lincoln, uh, uh, identified as a Republican, and uh, worked within the Republican Party, but quickly discovered uh, in my adult years that the Republican Party in Illinois, the leadership, and the federal prosecutor proved this, they were just as corrupt as the Chicago Democrats, just cheaper to buy. <laughs> yeah. And I, uh, I fought from within the party to, to bring, you know, that, that what, we, what we think about when we think of a Republican platform. Smaller government, lower taxes, more freedom and opportunity, uh, strong defense. 
And uh, I was very frustrated in that political world. Then those horrible September 11th attacks came in 2001. My sister-in-law, very insightful, uh, the oldest of six children in my uh, my wife's family, she gave me the book The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt by Edmund Morris. Great biographer, wrote a trilogy about Theodore Roosevelt, but it took him 30 years to write it because Theodore Roosevelt's life was so full of adventure and accomplishment. But when I read that book, it was Christmas 2001 that I began reading it. I was 36 years old, too fat and too old to join the military, but I was thoughtful and prayerful about how I might help the country. And when I read that book, I thought, and then I took action, I thought maybe the way I can help the country is to bring Theodore Roosevelt to life on stage and in classrooms the way Hal Holbrook brought Mark Twain to life. So it's that tradition of the one-man show, but you you caught that word repriser. Mm -hmm. I'm not a reenactor. Those people tend to emphasize costuming and period piece. Uh, I'm not an impersonator because it's not just an act. He's in my heart the way the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution's in my heart, the way... Uh, the uh, the ideas and principles, as, as you said at the top of your show, at the segment, uh, are, are inherent to what we do. Um, I really do try to uh, live up to the uh, Constitution's uh, uh, Section 1, as you recall, the, the powers of Congress, in which the enumerated powers clause includes Congress's ability to issue letters of mark and reprisal, uh, by which a pirate is authorized to capture an enemy ship and present it in exchange for reward. I attempt to capture the spirit of Theodore Roosevelt and present it, and thank goodness, often in exchange for reward. It's been my profession now since 2008 was my last political campaign in Illinois. I ran Governor Huckabee's presidential campaign in Illinois, had previously run uh, statewide and and uh, state senate races and that sort of thing, and uh, loved meeting the people of Illinois, where we all, I think, in, in a way expressed mutual frustration uh, that so much was going wrong with regards to state government in the state of Illinois. Well, when we were having dinner uh, with the Harrises, I knew you were more than just a repriser. You are a scholar of presidential history and American history. We had a long night of discussion about Teddy Roosevelt. I was so impressed. One of the interesting things about Teddy Roosevelt, he looms so large in the American imagination. Of course, he's on Mount Rushmore. But if you think about those faces, uh, those um, those sculptures on Mount Rushmore, Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, Roosevelt, um, there aren't really any others, including Washington and Jefferson, who do have people who represent them, who act on their behalf, who do reprise them. Teddy Roosevelt and maybe some Lincoln. You know, once in a while for entertainment, you'll see Ronald Reagan. But what is it about Teddy Roosevelt that looms so large? His life is more than magnanimous. It's a life that's hard. I could see why it would take three decades to do a biography on him because his life was loomed so large and he was such an accomplished figure and did so much. But why Roosevelt and really only Lincoln? We can leave Lincoln aside for another time. But what what is it about Roosevelt that actually has people doing impersonations of him, that has people doing reprisals of him? What is it about him that is so much bigger in some respects than Washington Jefferson or any other president? And and I'll come to that. Uh, Quickly, there are some of my colleagues who do portray Thomas Jefferson. Clay Jenkinson, a Rhodes Scholar from North Dakota, has a public radio program syndicated called the Thomas Jefferson Hour. Okay. Uh, we have some Washingtons, certainly one at Mount Vernon. But you're right, Abraham Lincoln, there are over 200 members <laughs> of the Abraham Lincoln Presenters Association. Okay. <laughs> they meet biannually, and they have bylaws. 
I've discovered about 60 Theodore Roosevelt's around the country, some doing it professionally, some semi-professionally, some just doing it as a, a hobby or avocation. Uh, I host an annual convention of Theodore Roosevelt's in the Badlands of North Dakota. But I have informed the attendees of our annual Badlands Chautauqua gathering of TRs that the first one of them that proposes that we have bylaws will be hung. <laughs> and, uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote of the joy of living and the glory of work. Uh, he gave that speech in 1899 to the society in Chicago when he uh, said, I come not to preach the, uh, uh, I come to preach the strenuous life, not the life of ignoble ease. He challenged America to live up to its aspirations by performing individual duties, uh, that you take care of yourself and your family first. But when you've got that taken care of, your next responsibility isn't necessarily to simply pile up your own wealth or buy another yacht or a polo pony. You're supposed to look around you and figure out how to live up to the uh, the admonition of James 122, which is what Teddy had his left hand on March 4th, 1905. Be thou not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word also. The gospel goes on to saying that uh, doing the word means clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, caring for the poor, uh, visiting the, the widow and the orphan and, and the prisoner. And, you know, that's a challenge to live up to those kinds of aspirations. But we've just come from a rotary meeting of the Phoenix 100 Rotary Club, and uh, they've been uh, doing the work uh, of service above self for over a century. No uh, no surprise that that group was founded in 1905 right. during Teddy Roosevelt's administration. Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, 4-H, the growth of uh, uh, mutual insurance groups like the Elks Club and the Moose Club. That was an era, that first decade of the 20th century. We call it the American century. But isn't it interesting that the first decade was dominated by the personality and the admonitions of Theodore Roosevelt from the bully pulpit all the way through uh, uh, the work that he did throughout the country for conservation, the Panama Canal, the Great White Fleet. There's just so much of accomplishment in the man. Yeah, the accomplishment is tremendous. The lore is tremendous. His upbringing is tremendous. Um, the suffering he went through and the overcoming of it. Uh, we have to take a quick commercial break, Joe. When we come back, I'd like to talk about some of that suffering, some physical, some emotional, losing his wife and mother on the same day, I believe Valentine's Day, which he would not ever speak of again after that, getting shot in the chest and giving a speech with the bullet lodged there. Maybe we can talk about all of that when we come back. My guest is Joe Wiegand, W-I-E-G-A-N-D. I spell it because when your name is Liebson, it's not self-evident how to spell it. <laughs> uh, you can get him, uh, follow him, uh, look him up at teddyrooseveltshow.com. You can look at the project for the Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library on behalf of which he labors at uh, trlibrary.com. And then the other website, you gave me the rule of threes, Medora.com, M-E-D-O-R-A.com. Teddy Roosevelt and I, Joe and I, we'll be right back. Joe Wiegand is our guest. He is uh, a Teddy Roosevelt expert, of course, uh, historian, uh, so much more. He is a uh, Theodore Roosevelt repriser. Atypical for us to come into um, a radio segment with the bumper music of a, of, a, of a commercial product like Maxwell Health, which does not sponsor this show, but maybe we can get people to look into that. 
Why does Maxwell House have a relationship to Teddy Roosevelt? I didn't prepare you for this, but I'm guessing you have something to say about Seth, it. Seth, it's it's a, a real delight. As as your listeners can see, I'm smiling ear to ear at hearing that uh, that bump. Um, Theodore Roosevelt is said to have been. Uh, we know he was at the Hermitage, uh, Andrew Jackson's home in 1907. Begged the ladies of the Hermitage Society. Said, "I just need to have a meal at the general's table." Uh, they acquiesce. They serve him luncheon during which they lobby him for federal funding for a new plumbing system for Old Hickory's house. Uh, in his next State of the Union address, he includes that as a line item in his State of the Union address, and Congress appropriates the funds. Uh, I spent some time at the University of the South in Suwannee, Tennessee, south of Nashville. The ladies of the Hermitage Society are still a group of ladies to be listened to. I bet. When he finished his coffee at luncheon, he turned to his hostess, who was a granddaughter of General Jackson, and said, Madam, that coffee was good to the last drop. There it is. The coffee was from the Maxwell House Hotel, downtown Nashville, Tennessee, Cheek Brothers proprietors, uh, Cheekwood Park in Nashville, their namesake. And it was after TR's demise that Maxwell House began using that phrase, good to the last drop, and illustrations of that that afternoon luncheon at the Hermitage in magazines like the Saturday Evening Post yeah. and, and uh, um, you know, the, uh, the other magazines of the day. So. A man of uh, great tragedy and great triumph. I mean, maybe the that maybe that's why he looms so large. The American story is his maybe his own biography. He grew up very sickly, and yet we have imagery of him as a very strong man, as a very powerful, physically uh, a force of nature. Um, but let's talk about that first big blow on Valentine's Day. If I may, very insightful. You in twenty years, you're the first person to see that. You know, his own life of struggle and hardship yeah. and then achievement. Yeah. That really is not just an American story, but isn't it the, the yeah. American story? Yeah. You and your listeners know that into each and every one of our, our lives, there's hardship and tragedy and defeat. Well, Theodore Roosevelt, who led the strenuous life and was a famous outdoorsman, he grew up as a very weak and sickly child with asthma in New York before they understood the disease, before there was real medicine for the disease. And he would often go to bed three, four years old listening to his parents speak outside his hallway as if he might not survive the night. Uh, he built his body, and I teasingly tell audiences, perhaps I've overdone it, <laughs> which uh, was true of Theodore Roosevelt. Mrs. Roosevelt sent him to the fat farm a couple of times uh, after the presidency, and he had to go work off the, uh, work off the weight. But Theodore Roosevelt not, over, not only built his health, uh, he had very poor vision, which wasn't discovered until he was 13 years old, and, and uh, he... Uh, he took boxing lessons because the bullies uh, were tormenting him. He overcame those youthful hardships, but then when he's 19 years old at Harvard, his father, Theodore Roosevelt, dies at the age of 46. Theodore Roosevelt writes to his siblings in his diary that he, he thinks he might go insane from sadness. And he goes to the north woods of Maine over five or six trips over two years, and it's the outdoors that helps him to heal. Also, his faith. There's a little historic site up in Maine now called Bible Point for the locals notice that Theodore Roosevelt took his canoe out to do Bible study at the break of dawn uh, just south of Island Falls, Maine. Uh, he, uh, he heals. Uh, he goes back to college at Harvard, falls in love with Alice Hathaway Lee. They marry on his birthday after graduation. He becomes a young member of the New York General Assembly, the youngest ever uh, elected to that date at 23. And then on February 14th, St. Valentine's Day, 1884, his wife and his mother die of two different diseases, each unexpectedly. His mother of typhoid fever, the dirty water disease. His wife, Alice, of Bright's disease, a kidney disease that's treatable today but was hidden by her pregnancy. 
There's nothing in his diary that day but a large black X and the words, the light has gone out of my life. And his friend Owen Wister writes of the twin, uh, twin funeral two days later, Theodore knows neither what he does nor says. Now, we probably all have had those gut punch, knock you to your knees moments in life that are sad or tragic. His brother Elliot never really recuperates from father's death. Elliot, who goes on to be Eleanor Roosevelt's father, dies young, alcoholism, drug abuse. Uh, T.R.'s own son, uh, Kermit, uh, develops a problem with alcohol in his post-war depressions and takes his own life with a service revolver in Alaska in 1943. And in the midst of tragedy and hardship, Theodore Roosevelt rises. He rises in part through uh, faith and through the outdoors. After wife and mother dies, he goes out to North Dakota, then Dakota Territory, becomes a cattle rancher, writes, writes about his hunting adventures and ranching adventures there, and he heals. The old phrase is, there's nothing so good for the inside of a man or a woman as the outside of a horse. He remarries an old childhood sweetheart. They have five more children, take the baby that was born just before his first wife's death uh, into their care. So eventually there's six children in the White House. Mrs. Roosevelt says she rears seven children there. So then getting to the point where you, you overcome in, in the telling of the story on stage, come through the hardship and tragedy, and, and you get to the point where perseverance and doggedness and uh, just that, uh, that joy of life that comes even in the midst of hardship and sadness. People know that story uh, several ways. I remember the first time I learned of it was secondarily or residually. It was uh, a big part of Richard Nixon's farewell address to the White House staff, and he quoted that diary entry. He felt like the life, the light of, in his life had, had gone out forever, and it was a story Nixon had used, again, perhaps about America as well, but the story of Teddy Roosevelt, which is the light really never does go out forever. You can be in the lowest of valleys, but still there are mountaintops to climb, and Teddy Roosevelt taught us that. We're going to head to a break in a moment, Joe. Uh, before we do, say a word about the museum if you want. Uh, I'll give out the website one more time if uh, if I have it right here. TRlibrary.com. TRlibrary.com. It's uh, amazing. Some people are uh, uh, amazed that there's no Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library, but there will be now. It's a $300 million project scheduled to open July 4th, 2026, you and I and your listeners have to learn a new word, semi-quincentennial. Yeah, that's right. We're going to mark your calendar for the 250th birthday of the United States. That's the planned opening for the Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library. Our governor, Doug Burgum, and the North Dakota legislature have put a, a great deal of investment into the effort. Private donors have uh, been very generous to the, uh, to the library project. It'll be coming to Medora, North Dakota. That is the gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park. And for... Uh, uh, um, f- boy, going on 60 years now, home to the Medora Musical, a, a wonderful outdoor musical that's held every summer uh, in the Badlands of North Dakota. Joe, I didn't, I didn't think to ask you this, and when we come back from the break, I'll ask you to address what you think Theodore Roosevelt might say about the 250th anniversary of America. My old teacher, a Lincoln scholar named Harry Jaffa, said in 1776, uh, 1976, that in 1776, America was, so to speak, nothing with the promise to become everything. He was worried in 1976, having become everything, our relativism was leading us to becoming nothing. And I wonder what you might think or what Teddy Roosevelt might think of America at 250. Might you address yourself to that when we Certainly come right so. back? Certainly so. Joe Weigand is uh, – Weigand, sorry. <laughs> Leibson, Weigand, we 
I's and E's, and we get that back uh, backwards sometimes. But it's W-I-E-G-A-N-D. Joe Wiegand and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Total delight to have Joe Wiegand uh, in uh, studio with us. He is the world's premier Theodore Roosevelt repriser. You can follow him and look him up at teddyrooseveltshow.com. He's also a spokesman on behalf of the Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library. What would Teddy Roosevelt say about America at 250? Um, And feel free to, if you want, Joe, to address yourself to something a lot of my listeners really gel to when it comes to Teddy Roosevelt, which is his opposition to the notion of hyphenated Americans. Wonderful. They're, they're not unrelated to each other. Right. I go back to a July 4th in 1886. This is the third year of Theodore Roosevelt being a cattle rancher. He's still a young man, and he's invited to address the July 4th uh, celebrations in nearby Dickinson, North Dakota. Uh, currently, by the way, home to Dickinson State University and their Theodore Roosevelt Center, a very important partner of ours. And he says, uh, in in summary, uh, he says, uh, I like big things, mm-hmm. big prairies, big mountains, big wheat fields, uh, big factories and steamboats and all the rest. But I would rather find us to be a virtuous and honest and honorable people than to own every railroad and grain mill in the world. We've piled up a great deal of wealth. I don't believe we're morally bankrupt, but we're morally challenged. Um, The need for the American people to look to their own uh, virtuous life, the the things that make a good citizen make a good country, and that's caring about one another, pulling your own weight, um, doing good work in the community, and I think we all should have perhaps rededicate ourselves with our 250th birthday on the horizon. Might we all, each and every one of us, rededicate ourselves, not just to being the uh, armchair critic, uh, which, of course, you know, Theodore Roosevelt's man in the arena speech uh, uh, takes, uh, uh, takes umbrage at the critic. Uh, we need to be people of action. And, and I think our nation, you know, it was uh, Thomas Paine for whom T.R. didn't have much uh, uh, regard uh, who said uh, – uh, you know, now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of their country. Now is the time for all good people, men and women. Uh, uh, I got my start in politics as a young teenager. Teenagers out there listening to this, young people, older people, there's still a need for people to get involved in the process, whether it's attending your school board or city council meeting or considering running for one of those posts or supporting somebody else who does, and even the kinds of things like going to school and, and volunteering to help the children learn how to read. Uh, finding some new immigrant and assisting them to become better Americans. I'll come to that point. Theodore Roosevelt said uh, he did not believe in hyphenated Americanism, that we were one people united beneath one flag with uh, uh, one common language, the language of the Magna Carta and the Declaration of Independence and the Gettysburg Address. I had an experience, and I I intimated this in a note to you, that uh, I was in a very influential, uh, affluent uh, uh, suburban metro Atlanta school, and I stay at the schools till from 8 a.m. until 3 p.m. The students come to a central location like a library so that we can have smaller, intimate audiences and not disrupt the school day. And at the beginning of our class, and I've been to this school several times, a teacher came up behind my shoulder and said, don't be surprised when they don't stand. Mm-hmm. 
didn't make any sense to me, but we proceeded to say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. And the teachers stood and said the pledge, and the librarian did, and about a dozen students did. And about 60 students remained seated and mute. I was shocked. And in character, I turned to those students and said, Good morning. I am Theodore Roosevelt, and I'm delighted to be back at your high school, but you must allow me to comment on what we all just experienced. I might guess as to why you sat and were mute, but I wonder if you know from whence the pledge comes. Uh, a, A man in Rochester, New York, a graduate of the Rochester Seminary named Bellamy, wrote the Pledge of Allegiance, brought it to the 1893 Columbian Exposition in Chicago, presented it to the national meeting of the uh, Association of State Superintendents of Schools. Uh, they adopted it, brought it back to their individual states because the Columbian Exposition was celebrating the quadricentennial of Columbus's uh, voyage and discovery of America. Um, it was celebrated on Columbus Day that year, 1893. And I explained to the students, the reason we did that then and the reason we still do it today is because we are people that come from many lands. We're ra- different races, colors, creeds, and religions. And one of the things that unifies us is that flag and our saying that pledge at the beginning of the school day. I'm glad that some of the students have told me they're reconsidering the action that they took that morning. If the American has the right stuff in him, I care not a snap of my finger, fingers whether he is Jew or Gentile, Catholic or Protestant. I care not a snap of my fingers whether his ancestors came over in the Mayflower, whether he was born or his parents were born in Germany, Ireland, France, England, Scandinavia, Russia, Italy, or any other country. All I ask of the immigrant is that he shall be physically and intellectually fit of sound character and eager in good faith to become an American citizen. If the immigrant is of the right kind, I am for him, and if the Native American is of the wrong kind, I am against him, said Teddy Roosevelt. Joe Wiegand and I will be right back. Delighted to have uh, Joe Wiegand in studio with us. He is uh, the world's premier Theodore Roosevelt uh, repriser and a scholar not only of Teddy Roosevelt but of American history. Let's stay with this um, this issue of what an American was to Teddy Roosevelt for a moment, if I can, Joe. Um, the notion of the melting pot, which seems to be in such, um, shall we say, downtrodden disgrace right now, the idea that we can all become Americans rather than something more hyphenated or something qualifiedly before that Americanism. This was a man, Teddy Roosevelt, who was very taken by the notion of the melting pot and the whole Israel Zangwill play about that. Yes, sir? Most definitely so. And Theodore Roosevelt, we're commemorating this year, as you know, Seth, the 125th anniversary of the Spanish-American War. Uh, 200 uh, Rough Riders came from Arizona Territory, mustered in at Fort Whipple up at Prescott. And T.R. writes so glowingly of his regiment, in great part because they were representative of the melting pot of America. Uh, You had people of uh, European descent. You had Captain Maximilio Luna, uh, whose uh, people had been in uh, Mexico uh, before Roosevelt made it to New Holland and uh, a man of Spanish blood. The the Indians, the Native Americans that fought in the regiment from both Oklahoma and Indian Territory. And, uh, of course, the United States Army was segregated at that point, but 
Captain uh, John Blackjack Pershing, who would later uh, lead the American Expeditionary Force in Europe. In part, they called him Blackjack because he led colored troops, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, they fought shoulder to shoulder with each other in Cuba. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt uh, had Booker T. Washington come to dinner at the White House in the first weeks of his administration. In 125 years, it was the first time that a a man of color had been a dinner guest of the American president at the White House. So I really do believe when I've I've read that Theodore Roosevelt— First Jewish cabinet member, too, of an First Jewish cabinet member, uh, Oscar Strauss, Secretary of Commerce and Labor. Um, Theodore Roosevelt said, he said, I've never met a man or a woman and judged him or her by his race, color, creed, or religion— you know a person's character by their actions, and by his actions, Booker T. Washington has shown himself to be the equal of any American man. So I like the melting pot analogy. I think there are others that are talking about the American stew, and and I think uh, Teddy belonged to the Holland Society. They celebrated their Dutch heritage, but they did so in a way that was thoroughly 100 percent American, and, and I would hope that all of us that have our heritage and our religion and the things that make us culturally unique, realize that all of that uh, uh, should be uh, available to us to make a better country and not to make a, the country weaker or more divided because we first and, and solely identify ourselves by our ethnic background or our religious identification. Instead, first be an American and and then bring in all of these wonderful things that make us a, a rich and diverse peoples. And that was that was a big part of his speech. It's a neglected part of his speech from the man in the arena address, actually, too, about being an American first rather than a citizen of the world first. A speech he gave, by the way, at the Sorbonne, if I'm not mistaken. April 23rd, 1910, after hunting in Africa. The speech is called Citizenship in a Republic. And like you, I love to read the whole speech. No. The man in the arena section has remained very popular, and even in modern culture. I, I don't know if LeBron James knew what, <laughs> right. what the implication right. was when he right. said he wrote The Man in the Arena right. on his uh, uh, shoe every night or that Miley Cyrus has a portion of it tattooed on her, I Lord knows where. Um, <laughs> but the speech is Theodore Roosevelt as a former president, now just a mere citizen, representing the world's old, oldest republic to the creme de la creme uh, of the citizens of the world's second oldest republic, uh, and he, he of course, uh, said that we had a lot to learn from Europe, from its institutions of higher learning, uh, that uh, we would not simply be exclusively in some sort of American experiment that didn't look to its antecedents uh, for inspiration or knowledge. I hope that we can uh, live up to uh, his aspirations for us. And, and yet, as my hero Ronald Reagan reminded us, we're always just one generation. Yeah. We're, we're today yeah. away from losing this great inheritance. So... I've enjoyed being, in my own way, a man in the arena or earlier in politics, now in theater. But I think the challenges that our country faces requires us all now, and, and I'm doing so personally, to consider how why, how might we help the country be a better place for our having been here. Nothing better than what you're doing in his farewell address from the White House. Ronald Reagan's impassioned intonation to the country was to relearn American history. That was his fear, is that we were having an, eva- uh, 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 an erasure of the American mind, an eradication of the American mind, and uh, that was uh, going to lead to an eradication of the American spirit by not teaching informed patriotism. Before Something, we move yeah, on, sir, sure. uh, I'm sure your listeners may have found that what my telling of the story from the Atlanta High School disturbing. I called a colleague of mine, uh, and he and his wife portray Theodore and Edith Roosevelt. Yeah. I don't have competition. I have colleagues, and we all iron sharpens iron, yes, uh, as the old course. proverb says. So uh, he told me, he's a second-grade teacher, 
he told me he has a number of second graders who don't stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. Mm-hmm. And, and I was hesitant. I thought, well, aren't you a moral force in that classroom that, that might be able to demonstrate that this is something important to do? But I think, again, as a public school teacher, and, and we're familiar with the challenges in public schools, uh, there's a, uh, a desire to kind of go along to get along and don't upset the parents. And if the parents are teaching the child to disrespect the flag, well, we'll still try to teach them the three R's. But it's really when I uh, combine what I experienced with my friend's insight to what's going on in an elementary school that I've decided I, I really have to redouble my efforts. Well, you're doing a, Have you ever been stumped? Oh, all the time. Do you really Usually get stumped? Usually on some little uh, local knowledge. Okay. Uh, uh, there's a, uh, uh, a fellow out of uh, Fort Smith, uh, Arkansas, yeah. uh, who had uh, – <laughs> there's a historic site there. And someone asked me about a, uh, a local poet that Theodore Roosevelt had appointed to be a collector of customs. Uh-huh. Well, Theodore Roosevelt probably appointed about 5,000 people to federal office. <laughs> you, you only knew 4,000, huh? <laughs> Right, right. And, and I forget, I think the, uh, the, 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 the pen name of this author was uh, Iron Quill, mm-hmm. and he wrote uh, a little bit of doggerel um, about uh, the dewy eyes of the King of Spain on the 1st of May because of Admiral Dewey being, being down in Manila Bay. I don't even... Uh, uh, I'm a bit frustrated when it comes to... Uh, Modern performances. Uh, my friends have seen Hamilton, yeah. and now audiences are asking me if I can rap. Yeah, Seth, I can hardly even rhyme. <laughs> but when I was asked about this individual, not by his pen name Iron Quill, but by his his given uh, uh, name, I had to uh, tell the audience. I said, "Well, you know, I'm going to have to look that one up." So we uh, have one last very short segment, and I was just trying to think what story I would like to elicit for you. What was the uh, what was the line in Liberty Valance when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Might you conclude when we come back in a couple of minutes, uh, Perdicaris alive or Rasuli dead? That'd be worth talking about. Oh, delightful. About. Fantastic. I Love think it. the audience would like that. It's a part of history not a lot of people know. Nothing ever changes is part of that story as Tremendous. well. Joe Wiegand and I will be right back. It has been a singular delight to have Joe Wiegand in studio. He is the world's best, the world's premier Theodore Roosevelt repriser, uh, teddyrooseveltshow.com. To learn uh, more about him or the Teddy Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library on whose behalf he speaks, trlibrary.com. You can also go to medora.com, M-E-D-O-R-A. I want to thank again uh, Jerry and Lynn Harris for putting us together in person. Lynn keeps me in um, in uh, keeps me away from hunger. She she's a great cook and <laughs> and um, anyway, tell tell this story. Uh, the the fight against um, the fight against uh, radical Islam uh, was not unknown to Theodore Roosevelt. And it's interesting in in reading Theodore Roosevelt, he uses the phrase Muhammadism. Yeah. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt, nineteen oh four, he's the president. He's looking probably at an easy re-election, and it will that fall be uh, a, a re-election by the largest electoral vote and popular vote plurality in our history in a contested election to that date. But earlier in 1905, in the summer, a uh, an American citizen in Morocco is kidnapped by the great Razuli, a Moroccan pirate. But this Moroccan pilot doesn't sail the seas. He lives in the mountains, and he's holding Patacaris for ransom. Uh, the uh, American president, Theodore Roosevelt, through his secretary of state, issues an order to be communicated to the sultan of Morocco 
that the United States desires Patakaris alive or Razuli dead? This story is told, and in a way mistold, in the wonderful movie The Wind and the Lion. Right where Sean Connery right. plays the Moroccan right. pirate with a Scottish accent, by the way, because, <laughs> right, right, it, because right, it's Sean Connery. Right, right, right. And instead of a 90-year-old American named uh, Jan Patakaris, it becomes uh, a young Jan Patakaris, played by a bon- blonde bombshell, uh, 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 Bergman, uh, uh, Candace Bergen. Yeah. Candace Bergen. So uh, that phrase, Patakaris, uh, alive or Razuli dead, is actually announced at the Republican convention right. in 1904. By John Hay, I think, if I'm not mistaken. By John Hay. Secretary. And Bedlam, right. Bedlam ensues. Right. There's a great uh, celebration. Uh, what happens, though, John Hay is looking through the files at the uh, State Department and discovers that apparently uh, Jan Patakaris had renounced his American citizenship <laughs> right. to avoid being drafted in this civil war, so right. he's a Greek citizen. Oh. But we had a lot of skin in the game yeah. by that point. The movie shows the Marines going ashore and battles in the Moroccan palace. It's an ahistorical movie, but it's uh, uh, Brian Keith does a wonderful job as, as Theodore Roosevelt. One thing I'd like to come back, you, you did mention that uh, eight years later, October 14th, 1912, Theodore Roosevelt is shot in the chest, goes on to make a speech for 80 minutes with a bullet in his chest. And I hope that uh, your, uh, your listeners will visit teddyrooseveltshow.com, trlibrary.com, and medora.com. And either come up to North Dakota when it gets too hot in Arizona or keep your eyes open for another Teddy Roosevelt show tour through Arizona. Seth, a delight and a pleasure to be with you and your listeners today. Joe Wiegand, I hope you come back to Phoenix often, and I hope every time you do, you will come by this studio. It's been a wonderful hour. Folks, have a great weekend. God bless you all. Until Monday, I'm Seth Liebson. He's Joe Wiegand. Class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.